was not that long ago in December as COVID was surging, many schools were contemplating an alarming decision, giving up completely on in-person instruction for the rest of the school year. In just a few months since, working together with parents and teachers and school leaders, we've turned the conversation from whether to reopen to when. Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. And this week's sponsors, the Stewart Foundation and the Hewlett Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Finsterwald. That was Governor Newsom giving his third state of the state address. Hard to believe that he's now in his third year as governor. This year, he gave the speech from an empty Dodgers Stadium in Los Angeles on Tuesday evening. Dodger Stadium, as many of you know, has been turned into the largest vaccination center in California. Not surprisingly, schools were prominent in his speech, and Governor Newsom predicted that by mid-April, 7,000 schools, about two-thirds of the schools in California, will be open for in-person instruction. That would be great news, Lewis, but we'll have to see how many grades in those schools will be open and what percentage of parents will actually be sending their kids back along with who will be there to greet the kids at the classroom door. One question is how many teachers will actually return to the classroom and how prepared those who do return will be to teach their kids. Later in the show, we will speak with Desiree Carver-Thomas, the lead author of a study by the Palo Alto-based Learning Policy Institute, and it looked at the potential impact of the pandemic on the pipeline of new, fully credentialed teachers. But first, let's take a look at one of the more interesting innovations of the pandemic, what's called learning pods or learning hubs. And actually, John, we'll find out that there's a difference between learning pods and learning hubs, depending on the definition that you use. But when we think of learning pods, I think most of us think about or read about uh, those small groups of students working with a teacher or tutor hired by an individual family or a few families pooling the resources. But an arguably more interesting innovation is how nonprofit organizations, often working in tandem with school districts, have created small in-person groups of students serving those hardest hit by the pandemic and providing a range of support services to help students get through this crisis. Well, we're fortunate to have on the line just the right person to discuss the phenomenon of learning hubs. Robin Lake is the director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education. The center is a nonpartisan research organization affiliated with the University of Washington at Bothell. Welcome, Robin. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Robin, your center has been doing great work tracking school districts throughout the pandemic nationwide, when they're open and how they're serving their students. You've also been tracking more than 300 learning hubs or pods across the nation and reporting on their progress. First, uh, describe what a learning hub is and why you decided to follow them. There's no official definition, of course, but I really distinguish a learning hub from a learning pod. The pods, I think, are pandemic solutions that parents have created, whereas for me, a learning hub is something that community-based organizations, after-school providers, school districts, more of a kind of institutional solution that uh, that folks create for kids to just really create a small learning community for them, a safe place for them to do their learning. And, you know, everybody's just trying to make things work right now. It's one more solution. 
Are these learning hubs then something that's evolved during the pandemic, or did they exist beforehand? You know, they, they really did pop up, I guess, to address a pandemic-specific need. But of course, you know, small spaces for kids to do their homework or do virtual learning are not unheard of. But, you know, I think what's interesting during the pandemic is just the scale at which these, these things have arisen. So 300 by our count, and we're learning about more every day and really across the country and in various communities, many more, I'm sure, that we don't even know about yet. Well, have they been driven by school districts or nonprofit community organizations? What's been the impetus for them? Yeah, as we've looked at those that we're tracking, most of them have been community-based organizations that have created these things. Many times in partnership with school districts, but school districts, of course, have their hands full right now just trying to get by and, and figure out the basic health and safety requirements of reopening. So, you know, that is what has struck me as really interesting about these hubs, the way that the communities have stepped up to fulfill a need. And in many cases, they're organizations that were around doing something for kids anyway, and they just thought, well, you know, we've got to get into this game of helping them to continue learning and accelerate their learning. Describe some of the things that they've done and how have they been innovative? The most important thing that they've done is they've listened to their students and community needs. What that usually looks like is, first of all, just a safe place for kids to do their learning. And, you know, in the very basic level, they're essentially providing childcare and supervision for kids. But as you move up the kind of spectrum of what these hubs offer, they get more and more interesting in terms of what they're doing. So many of them are providing social emotional learning for kids, just you know, space for kids to play and connect to other kids in a socially distanced way and all of that. And then many are providing mentoring or just, you know, guidance for kids as they are navigating these tough times using their expertise and resources that they've already built up. And then finally, they are really engaging in how to support kids learning through this difficult time. They're either providing, you know, just tutoring and guidance for kids doing their virtual learning. But some of them are really reinventing what that learning looks like and are thinking about this as a way to experiment with doing things really fundamentally differently for kids. Well, I'm inferring from what you're saying that in many of these cases, these kids would not be served if it weren't for the learning hubs being created. Yes. And, you know, we've heard some really moving stories from families about what a difference these hubs have made for their kids, especially for older kids, teenagers who were frankly just getting depressed and having a hard time being motivated in their virtual learning because you know, they were just in their room 24 hours a day. And so the structure of just getting out of the house, you know, having that space to focus on learning has been really important for kids. Are these learning hubs taking place during the school day or are they after school Saturdays? Most of them are taking place during the school day, but the hubs that are really playing with the margins of what's possible sometimes are offering evening hubs to older kids who have to work during the day and then want to do their virtual learning at night or providing flexible schedules based on student or family need. So they're, again, just trying to really be responsive to what families and kids need. Are they using teachers? 
I know in San Francisco, they're using community volunteers or people who work for these nonprofits. I think of them as leveraging all the helpers they can get their hands on. And so the helpers might be teachers who are retired and are able to come back in and volunteer. They might be after-school providers who know these kids because they worked with them after school, but now they're able to provide some tutoring or other supports. And sometimes they're parents who you know are really interested in engaging with their kids learning more closely. One of the things that excites me about these hubs is they're really reimagining all the people around a child who can help with that child's learning and not keeping things in a box. So really expanding the definition of teaching. So the center and TNTP, formerly the uh, New Teacher Project based in New York, just announced a million dollar grants to six learning hubs nationwide. They're those that are partnerships with districts. One of those is between Oakland Unified and the citywide virtual learning hub, which was founded by that dynamic activist, Lakeisha Young. So what stood out about them that led to their selection? It's hard not to get excited about what Oakland Reach is doing, and especially in partnership with Oakland Unified. I think that's what really caught our attention. Since the beginning of the pandemic, I've been watching Lakeisha and Oakland Reach's work. They just stepped into this pandemic and provided support for kids. But over time, that's really evolved into a structure for providing support to parents. Parents have guides to be able to support their kids' virtual learning. And Oakland Unified is interested in really learning from these kinds of efforts to think about how they can support parents, how they can learn from Oakland Reach's efforts around literacy instruction. They've been using some new approaches that are catching folks' attention. Do you see an equity issue around the learning hubs that particularly low-income families, low-income parents are less likely to be able to form these pods on their own? And so the onus is on the larger community to fill in what you are saying could be an important element in kids' overall success. Yes, you know, inequities are not new to public education. They've been exposed and exacerbated during this period, but they've always existed. But we also have the opportunity to jump in and say, huh, maybe there's something important here that all kids should have access to. And so my view is, rather than closing down options for some kids, let's make those options available for all kids. And that's what we're seeing through these pods and hubs. This movement that's arising is lower income families, families of color, after-school providers who serve these kids are saying, wait a minute, there's something really important here. Let's go out and make it happen. It's not okay to go back to a system that was failing our kids. Maybe this is a space where we can build something better. We've been speaking with Robin Lake, director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education. Robin, thank you for joining us and thank you for tracking learning hubs and bringing them to the public's awareness and funding one in Oakland. It's my pleasure. Thank you. We asked Robin Lake about a grant awarded to the Learning Hub partnership between Oakland Unified and the nonprofit Oakland Reach. Last spring, in the early stages of the pandemic, Oakland Reach was an early pioneer in creating what it called a citywide virtual hub. It provided 200 low-income students and their families tutoring, distance learning classes through a partnership with a new national distance learning network, enrichment activities, a K-2 literacy program, financial aid for struggling parents, and a family empowerment center to help 
parents with technology and other needs. We spoke with co-founder and CEO Lakeisha Young last summer, and we're pleased to have her back. Welcome, Lakeisha. Thank you for having me. Well, OpenReach and the Virtual Hub keep growing, and you have a new new plans tied to Oakland Unified through a $900,000 grant. Bring us up to date on what your organization has been doing for the children in Oakland and their families. Yeah, so I think we connected in the summer, which was great. And right as we were transitioning from the summer to the school year, again, everything we build, we build listening to our families and creating the solutions. So we took some time to really listen to our families about what was working well around the summer and what they wanted to continue to see or have supports or access to as the school year progressed um, or, you know, started and continued. And so where that landed us was really having a phase two model of the hub that took that family liaison role, which we've talked about before. 99% of our families said that they wanted to continue to have that support from a family liaison. We kind of call this person the educational social worker. They saw it as critical to keeping them going and succeeding. So from the summer to the fall, we grew from 200 to over 350. And now in the winter, we're at 400 and about to expand significantly through this partnership with OUSD. So your students are taking actual classes through the district, Oakland Unified, right? And then they're getting activities after school through the Learning Hub? Yeah. So our students are both district and charter school students, right? So they are attending their schools during the school day. And then from three to five, what our families have typically been doing, what they were doing in the fall is that they would choose an academic um, enrichment class that would run twice a week, and then they would choose a social enrichment. So a lot of it was literacy. It could be science, right? And then our kids love martial arts. So we continue to do our martial arts with Fromm's Martial Arts. But our families care so much about their kids' education and making sure that they stay on track that essentially their kids are going to school from like nine to five because they're participating in their regular school day from nine to three, maybe having a very small break and then jumping right into our academic program. So yes, that's how that looks. So how will the partnership with the district change things? One, we're just going to get to a lot more kids, which is really important. But because the focus of this expansion will be on literacy, the families will have access to all of that programming I was sharing with you. We have now sort of coalesced that into what we call the Opportunity Fund, which is free to all of our families. So in the fall, our families had access to maybe four or five partners, but we now have like 15 partners, both locally and nationally. So the thing that we're really going to be able to pilot and look at with this expansion with the six schools is how we're incorporating that literacy instruction during the nine to three so that the three to five can really be the time for enrichment and for families to really build their leadership and sustainability. So we're talking about a half dozen schools that you're connected to that we're launching with yeah we're piloting our hub with the district yes talking with Lakeisha Young from Oakland Reach so looking down the road when we are past this pandemic do you see that these learning hubs could be something that should be done without a pandemic in other words providing support virtually short answer is yes and I would say that if we start to think about the fact that the pandemic, as like horrible and crippling as it's been in so many ways, it's also created a huge opportunity to shift the way we do business around education, right? And here's something interesting to really think about. In so much of the advocacy work we do, 
we really teach black and brown families to like fight and struggle to just maybe get a little bit or maybe nothing at all. But the hub was really handing privilege. The hub is like, we call it like our families being kind of bougie, getting that porterhouse steak, right? We have given our families and provided our families with the stuff that they've been fighting for that they have not gotten through the system. Nobody's trying to give that up. Nobody is trying to give that up as they should keep fighting for it. Because if we have privileged families fighting or pushing and we have our families, then we start to really shift this system, right? And I guess I'll speak more for our families. Our families always are the ones who sort of get the system toppled on top of them. They're the ones who are served the, the least. Do you think, let's say post-pandemic, you would like to shift this to more of an in-person kind of model? Or do you think that this virtual approach really makes sense to give flexibility to families? I think that it can happen in both ways. The point we're trying to make is that the work of the Oakland Reach has always been about quality education. And we just have had an opportunity to create a model that does just that. It really doesn't matter if it happens in person or virtually. We will push for it to happen virtually as long as the majority of our families feel that that's what they need. But we have to be innovative and adaptive around quality because it doesn't really matter if it's in person or at home. Our families have not changed their aspirations about their kids going to college. We've been speaking with Lakeisha Young, who is the co-founder and CEO of Oakland Reach, an Oakland nonprofit. I'm glad we checked back. We'll have to check back sooner than nine months from now to see what you're up to. Thank you, guys. You guys are awesome. You know, John, these learning hubs sound great, but really they're reaching a small percentage of students and most of the work, the real heavy lifting will be done by teachers who are responsible for the progress and success of millions of students. Well, there's one ongoing challenge, Lewis. Even before the pandemic, California faced teacher shortages, particularly in the sciences and math and special education and in some urban and rural areas. Now, with the reopening of schools, there's a big concern that the pandemic may actually worsen the shortages. To explore the outlook for teachers in California post-pandemic, we have with us today Desiree Carver-Thomas. She's a research and policy analyst at the Learning Policy Institute, and she's the lead author of the Institute's new study called California Teachers in COVID-19, How the Pandemic is Impacting the Teacher Workforce. Welcome, Desiree. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us, what were your major findings about how COVID-19 might affect the teacher workforce? We interviewed district leaders from districts across the state. These districts serve one in six, nearly one in six California students. And we wanted to answer exactly those questions. And what we learned is that teacher shortages remain a critical problem. And every district that we spoke to had hired teachers on substandard credentials and permits. And these these credentials and permits go to those who have not fully, or have not been fully prepared, um, have not necessarily demonstrated subject matter competency, uh, may not be enrolled in a teacher preparation program. And we know that these teachers on substandard credentials and permits are concentrated in schools serving more students of color, more students from low-income families. They have higher turnover rates that, you know, exacerbate shortages rather than addressing them. And, you know, as they're replaced year after year, this negatively impacts student achievement. So it's a serious problem that has continued. 
First of all, tell us, what is a substandard teaching credential and what are we talking about? So this is an umbrella term. It includes interns who might be enrolled in a teacher preparation program while they're teaching. So they're learning how to teach as they're doing it. But it also includes teachers on provisional and short-term permits. And these are teachers who have not demonstrated that they that they have a mastery of the subject matter that they're teaching. They don't even have to be enrolled in a teacher preparation program, so they may not be getting, you know, learning how to teach even though they're in the classroom teaching students. What is the percentage of teachers entering the workforce now who aren't fully certificated? So the the most recent data we have is from 2018-19, and we know that substandard credentials and permits have nearly tripled across the state uh, between 2012 and 2018. So this is a major increase, but the increase has been even greater among those provisional and short-term permits that I mentioned, those what we call emergency style permits. These have increased more than sevenfold in that same period of time. So the, the teachers with the very least preparation to teach are growing at the fastest rates. We know that certain districts and certain schools, you know, in some cases, every new hire is a teacher on a provisional short-term permit, or every new hire is an intern. Um, So the impact on certain groups of students can be much greater than it might be when you look at the state average. Do we have a sense of whether more teachers are leaving because of the pandemic, either to take early retirement or because it's just been a bruising experience? More than Half of the districts that we spoke to had mentioned that retirements and resignations were a concern. Either they were rising or they were contributing to shortages in their districts. Some districts mentioned that leaves of absence are on the rise. So all of these are concerns because, you know, they'll have to find other teachers to step in. In the case of leaves of absence, a lot of districts are relying on substitutes to step in. And we've also heard um, through our interviews that there's a severe uh, shortage of substitute teachers as well. Let's stop there and talk about substitutes. I haven't heard yet of a district that's not having a problem either finding or competing for substitute teachers. Absolutely. And it's an issue that could impact, you know, reopening plans. From what we heard, if districts begin to reopen, more districts begin to reopen and teachers choose not to come back immediately or they choose to take retirement and early retirement and districts are using substitute teachers to fill in but can't find enough, that really could, you know, imperil their their plans to, to reopen. And so, you know, something that we've been thinking about is, you know, districts could increase their daily sub rates in order to draw more, you know, prospective substitutes into classrooms and also lean on teacher candidates. That's something we've seen uh, with teacher residency programs that, you know, residents may be doing the, the learning that they're doing as, as student teachers, but also filling in maybe one day a week as substitutes. So talk about then what approach can we take to widen the pipeline and get more candidates to become teachers? I think a critical issue in terms of widening the pipeline is that we don't just need more teachers uh, because, as I mentioned, we have plenty of substandard credentials and permits coming in. But what we really need is more fully credentialed teachers who are qualified to teach and who are more likely to stay for the long term. So it's important that teachers are, you know, there are supports for teachers to come in through high retention pathways Uh, which are those pathways where, you know, they're fully prepared, things like teacher residency programs. We have the classified staff program that supports paraprofessionals and 
other aides, people who are already invested in their communities and, and in their schools to you know move into teaching and get credentialed. Um, there's the Golden State Teacher Grant Program that can support candidates who will teach in a high need subject and location, which is incredibly important to solve those you know subject specific shortages and also fill in in those schools where you know that are really relying on substandard credentials and permits. Well, Linda Darling-Hammond, president and CEO of the Learning Policy Institute, has championed teacher residency programs where teachers are mentored by an excellent teacher while getting a teacher certificate. And California has been funding residencies and other grant programs for several years. Have they begun to make a difference? So there's a little both. The state has been investing in some of these high retention pathway strategies, and there have been modest results. We see, um, for example, a growth in teacher residency programs. Early indications show that 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 program is working. And in fact, a a survey that came out recently, 70% of the residents that responded to that survey were people of color, which also indicates that it's helping to diversify the the pool of of new teacher candidates, which is another important policy priority in the state. So absolutely, but it will take sustained investment in order to continue to build the pipeline and solve these really longstanding shortages. And we must say it's not just a recruitment issue, but it also helps with retention. In fact, a teacher resident who goes through the program tends to stay in the profession longer. Is that correct? Yes. Residents tend to have higher retention rates than teachers who are coming on substantive credentials and permits. They also have been shown to have positive impacts on student achievement. And like I mentioned, tend to be more diverse than the current uh, teacher pool. We've been speaking with Desiree Carter-Thomas who's a researcher and policy analyst at the Learning Policy Institute. Your study has given us a lot to think about regarding the challenges and potential fixes to the long-time teacher supply issue in our state. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, as we all know, making up these teacher shortages is not an easy task, but perhaps all this money coming to California from the federal government $13 billion approved in the American Relief Act that President Biden signed this week perhaps could make a difference in tackling this issue. That's money on top of the $6 billion that Congress approved. That's California's share uh, for districts in December. And the $6.6 billion that the governor and the legislature approved from the state budget. So you can add that up, Lewis, and it's over $25 billion just this year alone. One of the things we'll be sorting through, um, not only at EdSource, but I imagine uh, a lot of you listening to this podcast will be doing the same thing, figuring out what this money is actually intended for and how it can be spent. But obviously, it would be great if it could address this teacher shortage issue, a problem that has plagued California for quite a while. Exactly. Some of the programs that Desiree talked about, you know, teacher residencies, the Golden State Fellowships and the like. That's a certainly potential use. And California is already investing in those programs. So uh, perhaps the federal money could really help give a big boost to those efforts, at least in the short term. And on that note, that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks once again, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Finsterwald. Thanks for listening. Stay well. 
We'll be back next week. 